Hello, and welcome to Voices from the Village, a podcast from the Wyoming Early Childhood Professional Learning Collaborative. We know it takes a village to raise a child, and Wyoming Early Childhood Educators, as an essential part of that village, this podcast is for you. I'm your host, Nikki Baldwin, and today I'm thrilled to introduce our guest, Dr. Julie Bullard. Julie is an accomplished professor, author, presenter, and leader. Her book, Creating Environments for Learning, is one of the most influential books on learning environments in our field. I have used it for years in the classes I teach at the University of Wyoming, and it is our go-to resource on environments at the Professional Learning Collaborative. I love so many things about this book, and I can't wait to talk with you, Julie, about your work and about the importance of the learning environments we create for children. So welcome, Julie Bullard. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to have you here today. We've had the opportunity to bring Julie in to do some webinars for us um, with Project Echo last year. And those, that was a wonderful experience. And listeners, if you want to hear more from Julie, which I'm sure you will after listening to this, you can contact your facilitator and they'll help you get set up to watch those Echo sessions that Julie presented last year. So Julie, we have so many things we can talk about together today. One of the things I really wanted to do, though, is have you start off just giving us a little bit of your background and and tell us why early childhood, what led you here in your career? I think that I always, always loved young children and always was interested in how they developed. And so even, even in grade school, the school that I went to had what they considered librarians. And these librarians, who were often like sixth, seventh, or eighth graders, would develop activities for younger children around um, books. And so I started doing that in sixth grade, started planning these little lessons and activities for younger children in our school. And I loved it. So once I, you know, I had to think about what I was going to do for a career. It was pretty obvious to me that I wanted to do something working with young children because from a really young age, I loved watching them develop and I loved planning what you could do to intervene to help with that development. So I think that was where it all began. That's amazing that you knew so young. That this was something that you were interested in. That's really cool. Um, Julie, this is a podcast about professional learning. We're a professional Mm -hmm. learning collaborative. So we're going to talk a lot about learning. And I wanted Mm -hmm. you to start off by telling us what some of your biggest influences have been as a learner. Anything that really changed your thinking or transformed your practice early on in your career? Or, I mean, and we'll talk later about um, some things that you're still Mm -hmm. learning. But what kinds of knowledge did you gain that really changed you, lit the fire in you in early childhood? I think what, you know, when I think specifically of environments, I think something that really changed my thinking was when I took some architecture classes and started Mm. really thinking about the influence of environment on our well-being and on our learning and just upon our joy. So that had a pretty profound effect on me. I think with, in early childhood in general, I think um, learning about the theorists was something that I loved. I loved learning about Piaget and I loved learning about Vygotsky 
and I love, um, and you know, a lot of other theories, Montessori, mm-hmm. um, Reggio was very inspiring for me. Uh-huh. And, and so then thinking about how all of that work combines together and how it's relevant today and how it plays out within um, day-to-day types of activities and day-to-day types of um, learning environments has been really, really fascinating to me. And then, then also just observing, observing children mm-hmm. learning, observing teachers and how they facilitate that learning. It's been fun for me because I've had a variety of roles and so I've been able to observe myself as a teacher. I've been able to observe working with children. Um, I've been able to observe a lot of other teachers working with children. Uh And so it's that constant observing and seeing um, how different different ways we relate to children in different environments we set up and different materials we provide, how that influences children's learning has been fascinating. That makes a lot of sense to me. One of the gifts I think you offer our field in in that book and just in general is a really practice-based view of Mm -hmm. this environment. It's practical things and simple things and just Mm -hmm. that ability to take all those theorists and then really boil that down into here's some things you can do with kids every day. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the real strengths of the book for sure. Yeah, that really came through in that answer. That makes sense to me. And I would just like to dig in a little bit more about the book and what led you to write it. It's in the third edition now, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. What made you decide to focus on learning environments and to write the book? I think that throughout my career, I believe that play is really, really critical for children's learning. Mm -hmm. And I believe that environments are that backdrop for play and that that's how we as adults and teachers influence children's learning is by providing the environments and the props and the materials that they can utilize for play. Mm -hmm. So it seemed to me like we needed a book that would help teachers to, to do that. Because one of my real worries as an educator was that we were starting to see kind of a disappearance of play. Yeah. And a disappearance of play in children's home environments and a disappearance of play in early childhood environments. And so I felt like we needed a book that could help teachers understand that we can allow children to play and that they can learn all these things that we feel are so important for them to learn in the early childhood years. But that the way that we do that is by really consciously thinking about how we establish and set up environments. And so as an early childhood educator myself, I looked for that kind of book and I hadn't found the exact book that I wanted. And Mm -hmm. so that led me to think about writing a book. Along those lines, uh, just Mm -hmm. a a question for you. One of our 
our professional learning facilitators all sent questions that they were hoping that I would ask you. And this one uh, is from one of our facilitators I thought was really interesting. So I, I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. She wanted to know, what are some small things someone could do that can make a big difference in their environment? Because we feel like your book yeah. is full of a million small things. I think that's where that's coming from, you mm -hmm. know? Any, any thoughts about that? Well, I think it would depend kind of on what stage you were in, in environmental design. Sure. So if you were just beginning, I think a small thing you can do that makes a big difference is making sure that you have really well-established boundaries, mm -hmm. um, separating areas. For example, if you have a dramatic play area and you have a block area that you have... Um, well-established boundaries so children aren't running through the block area and accidentally knocking them down by bringing the doll by through sure. and and so for beginning in beginning environmental designers I find that that they often don't think clearly about that and end up with some kind of issues surrounding it mm -hmm. um, as people go on designing I, I think one of the things that's a small change is making sure that you have enough materials so mm -hmm. that children aren't fighting over materials that are there. Mm -hmm. And so there's not so much competition for materials that children are just kind of waiting around with nothing to do. I think a uh, change people can make is making sure that that environment is something that reflects them and the children that they're with. So, you know, sometimes you go into environments and they're kind of like cookie cutter environments. Uh -huh. and, and you could walk in, like I often go to environments where there's no children present. And so you walk in and there's nothing in that environment that really tells me who's here, mm -hmm. you know? And so children and adults feel proud when they have their work displayed or when they have pictures of them doing things on the wall or when, you know, it's evident that this environment um, meets their needs. And so that's not... Those might not be small things, but I think they're really important things. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I'd, I'd love to, to, two of our facilitators ask questions about that because I think um, that we recognize the importance of what, of that piece. And um, would you have any guidance for someone who's hearing that and thinking, okay, it needs to, what we want is our environments to reflect the people that live mm -hmm. and use them, right? That, mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, any advice about how to start? If they're thinking, sure, I want my environment to better reflect the teachers and the children and the families and our community. Any, any advice about where to start? Well, I think one place I would start would be just with photos and with work of the children and, adult, and adults that are in the environment. Uh -huh. And that might be something like, um, like you have a hand washing chart. And it might be just putting pictures of children that are actually in that room washing their hands instead right. of the generic chart. 
or um, perhaps it's in the dramatic play area and you have um, pictures on the wall. Well, maybe it's just substituting one of those pictures with a picture of the children in the room that are dressed up, you know, mm -hmm. just a, a snapshot of a child dressed up or, um, you know, so it could be simple like that. It could be that children's art is but decorating the walls instead of, um, you know, a poster. And mm -hmm. so, and, and that art could be framed with a frame from the dollar store. Sure, know? yeah. So it could be, it could be things like that. But I think going a little, a little beyond that, it might be thinking about, as a teacher, thinking about what are things I love? Like for me, like one of the things I love, I love to drink tea. I, I'm a huge <laughs> tea drinker. Uh -huh. So if you were to come into my house and see that um, above the kitchen um, cupboards, I have I have a collection of teapots, you mm -hmm. know, and I have quotes about tea. And you know, you, mm -hmm. it would be obvious to you if you walked into my house that oh, she loves tea. <laughs> so. Um, so as a teacher, it's not that I'm gonna I'm gonna um, probably give children tea every day. And <laughs> <laughs> right. But but one of the things that I would make sure that was available in the dramatic play area would be a teapot because it's mm -hmm. something I would want to share. You know. Yeah. And I love plants. So mm -hmm. as a teacher, if you walked into my room, you would see plants because I love plants and that's something I would want to share with the children would be mm -hmm. my love of plants. So I think when you're a teacher, you should be thinking about what are your loves too that, that you want to share and that would be obvious in your room. Mm -hmm. And then I think with the community, it's like we live in communities where like in our community, there's a lot of fly fishing. There's a lot of fishing. People come mm -hmm. from all over to fish and these blue ribbon trout streams around us. Uh -huh. And so at some point in uh, my environment, I would probably want to share that with children. It's something they're probably familiar with. It's part of the culture here. Mm -hmm. um, we live in an area too that's a rich ranching area. That'd be that'd be something else that I'd want to make sure that I shared with children through the environment at different, you know, I wouldn't have maybe that there all the time, but it would be something that at some point, it would be something that I would definitely want to share because it's part of our community. Yeah. I love that. And I just think it's wonderful to remind, especially the adults. I think sometimes we forget that we we spend hours every day in this space. We should right. bring ourselves to the space, and right. um, and that's where and that builds these really deep relationships when we're mm -hmm. willing to share those things that matter to us and to recognize those things that matter to our families and the kids mm -hmm. in the space. Yep, mm -hmm. I love that. Um, I have another interesting question for you. I can't wait to hear what yeah. you say to this. <laughs> <laughs> Could you give an example of something that you've seen? when uh, you've entered a space and you feel like the environment is sort of working against teachers or that something that's happening in the environment is just really working for them. But just, you know, you're looking and you see this, you know, just these couple simple things and this wouldn't be working against you right now. Mm -hmm. I can think of um, 
I visited Children's Museum. I love to go to Children's Museum or, and lots of other places and look at their play spaces. Uh-huh. So I went into a Children's Museum and they had, um, they had this wonderful display, I guess almost, but it was, they were trying to introduce children to a variety of different clothing from throughout the world. Uh-huh. And so, but they had them all folded neatly and placed on the shelf. Mm-hmm. And so um, immediately, of course, as soon as children entered, they'd be dragging everything off the shelves and they weren't folding them neatly and putting them back on the shelves. Uh-huh. So the staff was the staff was spending all their time folding those clothes up and putting them on the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so the children weren't able to really see the clothing, you know, clearly because mm-hmm. they were folded up and on the shelf. And the adults had this idea about how to keep the area neat. And Uh so they were spending an ordinate amount of time making (laughs) this happen. And and I sat there and I I was just thinking to myself, I wonder if anybody's analyzed Yes. I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. you walk in, it's an outsider, and it's so clear that this is not working. Yeah. And sometimes it's not very clear when you're in the midst of it. Yep. And so I think that when you as a teacher are finding that you're spending a lot of time on something, it's, a, it's time to reanalyze and think, hmm, what could I do differently here? Uh-huh. Uh, (laughs) that's a great example I feel like there's probably a lot of things like that in my classroom days that uh, I was doing that to myself mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and you don't see when you're right embedded in it sometimes you can't see it I Mm -hmm. I think one of the things I recommend is that every once in a while you have someone come in just as an observer and watch and because sometimes as an observer it's so easy to pick up Mm-hmm. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. Listeners, if you're interested in doing that, that is a thing that our facilitators would love to do, or even better, connect you with somebody else that's in a classroom and mm-hmm. you can do a little exchange and look at each other's yeah. spaces. Here's another question for you. What's something that you think most teachers do well, but they don't realize it maybe, they don't recognize? I think that that most teachers go into the field because they really enjoy children mm-hmm. and and I think that that is absolutely critical that mm-hmm. the people that work with young children love them that they mm-hmm. love being around them that they get so much enjoyment from children that uh-huh. um, that you want to tell everybody about it that you uh, want to share these little anecdotes at the end of the day and I don't think sometimes we fully appreciate how critical and essential and special that is mm-hmm. to have teachers that have that love. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, it does to me. And I was just thinking that if you, if you find yourself, you know, you run home and the first thing you want to do is tell a great story about things uh-huh. that happened with kids that day, you uh-huh. can, you can pat yourself on the back and rest assured that like you're enjoying kids. And mm-hmm. I agree. That's like, that's the foundation, right. Mm-hmm. For the rest of this work. I love right. that. Um, you, you've done a lot of international work recently, mm-hmm. haven't you? Would you tell us a little bit about what you've been up to? I, I went to China 
and mm -hmm. loved it. So I was there for about 10 days and got to visit a lot of different early childhood programs in China mm -hmm. and presented at an international conference there and did some other presentations. But uh -huh. mainly, mainly got to really see, you know, see early childhood environments in China. And it was, it was really fascinating and interesting to get mm -hmm. that opportunity. You've had some people since then, you're doing some work uh, with some folks in China, right? Using around your book? Is that yeah, yeah. I did the my book has been translated and so my book is used quite a bit in China. Mm -hmm. And so it was interesting for me to see the questions and things that teachers have there. And for me to get to see sometimes the misunderstandings and then go back and think about it and analyze it. For an example might be uh, about alone spaces. Mm -hmm. and, and I realized that in my book, I have pictures of alone spaces, but I don't necessarily have pictures of what goes into alone spaces. Mm -hmm. And so it gives the idea, I think, wrongly that an alone area or retreat space or whatever we want to call it mm -hmm. is this solitary space with no materials. Ah. And so I think that I have been probably the pictures I've chosen have led to misunderstanding about alone spaces. That's and interesting. I know. And, and I don't think it's only in China. I think that's happened here as well. Mm -hmm. And so one of the big questions that people had were, were, you know, children want to use these alone spaces as a dramatic play area. And should we allow that or not? And, and then as we began to talk, I realized that they were not adding any material to the alone space that children could utilize. And that was probably why children then were choosing to use them as dramatic play spaces. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. So that relates to my next question, that anecdote, which is just what are some thing, other things you've learned about environments in your international work that maybe you didn't understand in the same way before? One of the interesting things when I went to China was that um, they have really well-developed outdoor environments. And one way that they make those environments work really well is by having a lot of real accessible, easy to access storage in each of their um, outdoor kind of learning spaces. Really? So, so it's something I had been promoting for a long time, but had not really seen it being implemented so much until I went to China. Uh -huh. So it was very exciting to get to see that. So for example, we might, in environments in the United States, we're often maybe taking things in and out of storage sheds mm -hmm. or bringing it in and out of the indoor environment. Mm -hmm. And instead of having it always available in the playground and protected in some way, right in the area where it's going to be used. So you might like have a, uh, um, an art center outside and you might have a storage cabinet right next to outdoor easels that contain all your paints and materials. Mm -hmm. So all you have to do is open up that storage, that little storage area and it's right there. And so 
you know, that was, I think I got a little off focus there, but I think. No, no, that, <laughs> but, that's amazing but, to think about. But that would be, that would be one of the, um, one of the things I saw there that I thought was, was really interesting. Well, and that's just so practical again, right? It's just right. really simple. <clears throat> that doesn't occur to us always. Just a little mm -hmm. extra thought. And, and, and that's another, another thing I really love about that is it's about things like storage. When we're right. thinking of our spaces, we really want to think intentionally about something that, that might seem uh, that others might not think about at all. But where we place storage can make a huge difference. It can make a huge difference because mm -hmm. if we want a really rich outdoor environment and we have limited teacher time, we just don't have time to be bringing all these things in and out every mm -hmm. day. You know, yeah. we, and instead of having one big storage shed of having smaller storage spaces positioned throughout our play space, is um, way, way more helpful. And yes. so I saw a lot more of that in China. I love and, it. And one of the things they were using was um, wire shelving, like large wire shelving, but then they had these covers, these rain waterproof covers mm -hmm. that would zip over the top. So then huh. you could just unzip it you know, uh -huh. and, and get to all your materials and you can zip it back up and those materials will be protected. That's fabulous. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe your next edition of the book, you can toss in a picture of that. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, just a few more questions for you today, Julie. This has been great. What are some of your concerns or worries about our field right now? Some of the things that you see maybe happening as you've traveled so much and seen so many places. What's on your mind? What do you, what worries you? I really worry that we're decreasing the amount of play mm -hmm. that children have and that we are sometimes maybe creating environments that are not joyful. Ideally, we want early childhood to be a time where children are joyfully learning, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that they're joyfully learning through play. And I think we've become sometimes so concerned that children meet certain benchmarks that we've taken away play. We've become more teacher directed, mm -hmm. we've become more we've lost um, real concrete learning experiences and replaced mm -hmm. them sometimes with workbook type activities. Yeah. And, and so that's very, very worrisome to me. I get worried about things that decrease children's involvement in play and their ability to be engaged in deep play. Mm -hmm. And so it seems sometimes that as we, as adults become worried, um, then we want to exert more control. We want to make sure all children are doing exactly the same thing maybe, or yeah. that we want to exert control by doing things like rotating children every 15 minutes through centers to ensure <laughs> that every child engages in every center. But by doing that, we are disrupting deep learning 
opportunities. So for example, when children are building a block structure, the initial build, they don't usually learn or engage in a deeper learning at the beginning of building that block structure mm -hmm. as they do later on in the building of that structure. I mean, they're, let's, yes. say that, let's say they're making a building and they're trying to make it as high as they can. That becomes more difficult as you go on and you're trying, you know, and so, or like a, a dramatic placing and they're negotiating it with the other children in the center, like who's gonna play what roles. And as they try to keep that role going, it becomes more advanced and more difficult. Mm -hmm. And there's more learning involved with it. And when we artificially cut that off by saying, okay, time to rotate now, we've negatively impacted their learning. It's the same thing, you know, with play is such an ideal learning method that when we take it away and we substitute instead a teacher-directed activity, we've lost a wonderful ingredient for learning. I want everyone in the world to listen to the words you just said about that. <laughs> I, we need to hear it. Uh, thank you. Well, then, um, on the positive note, what have you seen lately that's inspired you or brings you hope? I see early childhood teachers who are so dedicated to children and I see teachers sharing the things that they're doing on, in a variety of different media and mm -hmm. inspiring others. And I see that finally, I think nationally, there's this recognition that early childhood are um, critical, important years. So all of those things really, really give me hope. Mm -hmm. Another question from uh, one of our professional learning facilitators, and then we'll sort of wrap things up. As a group, we've been thinking a lot about implicit bias and equity and those things, certainly since last summer in particular. Mm -hmm. And she asked uh, this, how can we set aside implicit biases to make our spaces welcoming and representative of everyone? I think it's a really wonderful question. I think maybe one way we do that is by really thinking about and learning about the communities that we're in and the families that are using our environments mm -hmm. and, and to, really, to really get to know the families and what's mm -hmm. important to them and what they want to see within our environments and what mm -hmm. they're willing to possibly share that we might include in our environments. And so maybe including families and community members as guests in our environment, but it goes way beyond that. It means that we try to truly gain an understanding of, of what's precious and we include those precious things within our environments. Does, mm -hmm. does that make sense? It does. I think that's beautifully said. They're not just guests. They contribute. They're partners. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And that idea of what's most precious to families and children. 
Mm-hmm. That's very healing to hear that. Yeah. yeah. And that we value, we really value that. Wow, Julie, this has been amazing. I do have one final question for you okay. uh, because this is a podcast about learning. What's something that you've learned lately that you're really excited about? Hmm, there's so much. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to hear all of it. <laughs> I have been, one of the things I've been um, working on, I have a four-year-old grandson that I don't get to see and a, and a nine-year-old granddaughter. Uh-huh. And so... One of the things I've put together for them lately and I've been thinking about are little challenges, but I'm calling them little challenges. You might call them like little engineering challenges. So so what I'm doing is I'm developing these little kits with materials that I'm sending them along with little challenges, like kind of open-ended questions Uh uh, that they might use with these materials. Mm-hmm. And so I've been thinking a lot about developing these little challenges for young children. Those are the luckiest children in the world that get to be your grandchildren. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to need you to probably publish a book with all of the challenges from their grandma. That's amazing. I'm a grandma yeah. now too, and I'm going to need to get my hands on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's been really fun to think about it because there's a challenge for me, like it has to be something that can be shipped easily. Right. So, so that creates an additional challenge. Yeah. And so it's I, been a challenge for them and a challenge for me. I love it. I know our listeners are going to be dying to know like one example of one challenge for your grandkids. Will you just tell us one example? Okay. Okay, and uh, I mean, one challenge was I sent um, some little figurines that they really are engaging with right now mm-hmm. and so then then I had them I had their mom freeze them in a block of ice so one of the challenges was what's the best way to get these figurines out of the ice and so you know so so experimenting with hmm should we chip the ice off should we use a spray bottle of salt water uh-huh. you know how can we get these out but but works best. So that was one challenge. Then once they oh, got the it. figurines out, then the, one of the challenges was to try to build a little bridge that would hold the figurine. Uh-huh. And so I sent a variety of different kinds of dust materials like popsicle sticks and straws and just different things. Mm-hmm. So that'd be an example of a challenge. <laughs> uh, what do your grandchildren call you? They, they call me grandma. grandma. I have, yeah, but I have, uh, it's kind of funny. I have a, young, a two-year-old grandchild and somehow she started calling me grandma G and we don't know where she got the G. <laughs> that's but, excellent. But I needed grandma to know G. that because I'm like envisioning this book that's like <laughs> challenges from grandma G or something. Yeah, right. uh, yeah <laughs> that's coming from you. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Julie, thank you so much for this time. I genuinely feel so grounded every time I listen to you and talk to you. And so I just feel, feel so grateful that you gave us this time today. Um, and listeners, uh, if you want to get your hands on Julie's book, it's so important. It's such an amazing tool. And we will purchase it for you through the Professional Learning Collaborative. We want to get it in 
as many hands of as many people in our state as we can. So just get a hold of your professional learning facilitator and say you'd like to do some work with them around Julie's book. So thank you so much, Julie, for your time today. Thanks for sharing your wisdom with us. And thank you, listeners, for joining us on Voices from the Village. This podcast is made possible with support from the Federal Preschool Development Grant and is produced by the University of Wyoming Early Childhood Outreach Network. We recorded our interview today on Zoom. This podcast is directed and edited by Bryce Tugwell. 